1: A major war is taking place on the European continent with Russia's invasion of Ukraine, bringing you a series of special episodes to help you understand the crisis as it unfolds. This is Doomsday Watch. Welcome back to another Doomsday Watch war bulletin. We want to start off by saying thank you for tuning in. Listeners like you are the bedrock of our work. If you're finding these war bulletins useful, you can support us by backing us on the crowdfunding app, Patreon. You'll get the shows early, ad free, help us shape future episodes and get exclusive merchandise, all from just three pounds a month. Just search Patreon Doomsday Watch or follow the links in the show notes. One aspect of Putin's war on Ukraine has been his use and abuse of history to justify his actions. He wrote famously a 5,000-word essay in which he argued that Ukraine really had no independence as a historic entity, and that has been used to justify his decision to attempt to invade Kiev. But I'm delighted to be joined today by a historian, Dr Jade McGlynn, who is an expert on history and the ways in which it has been manipulated, both in this conflict and wider. Jade, welcome.
0: Thank you very much.
1: So, Jade, I think actually... Uh, we've got two guests today. Perhaps you could introduce uh, your daughter.
0: Yes, my daughter's um, with us today. Um, she's six months old. She'll be listening in, hopefully not contributing too much, but you might hear the odd the odd babble.
1: Well, given her parentage, I'm sure she's got huge insights to offer. <laughs> Thank
0: you. Jade, so let's jump straight in.
1: Um, let's talk about how Putin and Russia's leadership uh, has tried to use the ancient medieval history of Ukraine to justify what they're doing. What's going on here?
0: The way in which um, Vladimir Putin has referred to Ukrainian history has really not been about Ukraine at all, but about Russia and about its need to sort of explain, sorry, she may interrupt at points, to explain the reason why um, Russia is, is not only a nation, but is a great power with a right to dictate to others and a right to its own sphere of influence. So if we think back to sort of medieval history and, 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 and even further back, sort of the, the history of, of Kiev and Rus, very quickly, Kiev and Rus is a point of great dispute in terms of who is the heir. So if we think about the famous sort of Oscar Wilde quote that the United Kingdom, the United States are divided by a common language, in many ways, Ukraine and Russia are divided by a common history in that both claim the legacy of, of Kiev and Rus, um and it's important to Ukrainian nationhood because it gives this sense of um of, of statehood that goes back of course many many centuries which is something that Russia tries to deny but it's important as well to Russian ideas of empire um and the sense that it's the the inheritor of of this of this sort of more ancient um civilization
1: yeah so russia of course uh is an empire that in even fairly recent times, in the form of the Soviet Union, expanded into countries all over Europe and Central Asia. But when we talk about Kiev and Rus, we're talking about something which is deep in the Middle Ages. Perhaps it, you could give us a quick sort of explanation of what that is, where that is, what what does it, how does it relate to the world of now?
0: Well, the main way is because this is really, I suppose, the birthplace of of not only of Russian, but of East Slavic identity, in the sense that it was Prince Volodymyr in Ukrainian or Prince Vladimir in Russian who baptised Rus, um, who brought the Eastern Slavs over to Christianity. I mean, there's a lot of historiographical dispute. In a way, what's interesting here isn't actually so much the history, but why it matters. And why it matters is because it's about legacy. It's about creating this sense of almost historical essentialism. So Putin is not somebody who believes that that nations are constructed. He believes that nations, they kind of just exist. Um, yeah. And we see a lot of these references to historic Russia. And I know a lot of people in the West tend to talk about his aims as if he were trying to recreate the Soviet Union. But that's not the case at all. He likes the Soviet Union insofar as he sees it as historic as, as as representing another form of historic Russia um, in the in the same way that the Russian Empire did but he's not necessarily enamored of the Soviet Union for many reasons beyond that you know his his speech on the eve of of invasion in which he strongly criticized Lenin for in his view creating Ukraine which is was obviously nonsense but um, in this particular case, it's not the point. Um, that was probably one of the most anti-Soviet things I've heard in a long time from a Russian. To be honest,
1: yeah, and of course, um, you know, Putin is very. Uh, I, I can't. I can't judge his personal faith, but he's very into the Russian Orthodox Church, isn't he? As a kind of statement of Russia's historic power.
0: Yes, he he is. Um, I agree that it's difficult to judge his faith. But I mean, paradoxically, a lot of people in Russia identify as as Orthodox, but very few. I think there was a survey in 2012 showed that only 4% of Russians actually attend mass in any, you know, let's say once a month
1: um,
0: in any sort of regular fashion. So, I mean, the Orthodox Church is very much an identity marker, of course, since the fall of the Soviet Union in particular, um the, the church is playing quite a. if we were going to be polite i think we could say quite an unusual role for a church <laughs> for 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 men of god um during this conflict um and they very much depict um what russia is doing in ukraine and to ukrainians as um, as they are heroes, this is a war of this is a defensive war. There's a real martyrology around it, and it's important to understand that the Orthodox Church in Russia it really is sort of subsumed to the state, and it and it has been since since Peter the Great. So that's that's its position.
1: Yeah. So we've talked a little bit about Putin's exploitation of history, if we like, to create this great claim of of Russia, as you say, which is a you know Russia. It's always as if Russia has existed. Since, since the beginning of world history, and, and, and it has a sort of essential right to exist. But one of the interesting things I'm keen for you to learn more about is the way that Putin is is sort of reinterpreting more of Russia's history than just this aspect to do with with Ukraine, uh, and in particular, what Russia refers to as the Great Patriotic War, and most of us talk talk about as World War II. Um so so what what is Putin's message there and how is he trying to sort of transmit that on a on a global basis?
0: That's a really important question. I mean, I would say that it's it's one of the core um features of of my book on this topic that's coming out next year. But I'll take your question in two parts. So one of them is the history that's promoted, not just by Putin as well, because I think we have to be careful because it's natural that we focus very much on him. But really, in this case, I think a lot of the time, and maybe even in foreign policy more broadly, I don't think that Putin is dictating foreign policy or, or other forms of policy to Russia. I think he's articulating what many Russians want to hear. Yes, And I think that's an important distinction. So it's whilst we can talk about, it's easier to talk about elite discourse or elite language, it's worth bearing that in mind that that this resonates with people. And why it resonates is because, although at the look of it, it, this is a weird jumble with bits from imperial history stuck on with bits from Soviet history, it doesn't really make that much sense. But actually it does in the sense that it all is cohered together by a certain argument that... Clearly, Russia needs a strong state. So any history supports that, which is why you see this sort of kind of partial rehabilitation of Stalin um, as well. And any history that shows that Russia is a great power. And the core element of that is the Great Patriotic War, which is essentially the the Soviet experience of of World War II from 1941 to 1945, because obviously they don't want to remember about 1939 because of the Molotov-Ribbentrop
1: Act. And that little war in Finland that didn't work out quite how they planned.
0: No. Yeah, exactly. Now is not a good time in particular to be remembering about little wars or operations that did not work out as planned. Um, But... I mean, it's obvious why it would be so important. It's, it's not like in Britain that I mean, I've I've never I've never gone hungry for want of a World War II analogy in Britain either. But the level, the intensification, is something is just on a completely different scale. It's really part of everyday life, um, and it's worth noting, of course, that the Soviet experience was just sort of epically tragic with, with yeah. twenty-seven million Soviets dying. But yes. what's Happened is Russia's very much sort of nationalized the heroism and nationalized any of the kind of victimhood to Russia and then externalized any form of, of sort of collaboration or any form of, of nastiness that, that happened or of course just outright denies it. Um, And so we see this a lot with the idea that Ukrainians are somehow Nazis or or Nazi collaborators um, or followers of of Stepan Bandera. This Bandera, essentially, in Russian, it just means Nazi collaborator, really, in this sense. Yeah. Um, Whereas Russians are the heirs to the Red Army. And, you know, I watch a lot of Russian... a lot, of, a lot of Russian media, a lot of Russian propaganda. And they'll be standing in some random field in, in Ukraine and it will almost, you know, so often it will start in World War II, their ancestors, you know, fought back the Nazis here. Um, and now they're doing the same thing again. I mean, that's a pretty, so by this point, it's almost a cliche of, of, of the reporting. Um, yeah. So it's really part of everyday life. And of course, then just finally to sum up and answer the rest of your question, Russia and Putin, they try to, um, or Russian institutions try to then project this narrative abroad as well, because essentially their moral right to be a great power and to dictate to others does come from, from 1945 and from their victory over Nazism. Um, and that's what's, what's interesting now is that I think they're trampling all over that. Um, that, that, was, that was something that did still exist. And I think they're trampling all over it in, in Ukraine.
1: In terms of that sort of the, the the moral credibility that goes with having been an absolutely, arguably the core element in the defeat yes. of Nazism, yeah,
0: exactly. That's yeah, that's my
1: opinion. <laughs> and if we explore that a little, one thing that's interesting is, of course, the Russians are quite successful at this. Um, there are there are countries in Europe such as Serbia. There are countries in the global South, and there are political movements in the US where you're, you're joining us from where where people have bought Putin's interpretation of history. So uh, what explains the success of, you know, these sort of Kremlin activists?
0: I think there's two different things going on really there. And it's it's an interesting question. So one of them is 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 what I call memory diplomacy. So Russia's efforts to promote its version of history abroad. Mm. Um, and, and it does that in different ways, different countries. And you've spoken there about the global South, in particular in Africa, for example, it draws on its history of, of supporting anti-colonialism as, as the Soviet Union and and of course that's that's very populous there's there's a lot of um of warmth in terms of some of the memories, because they see the Soviet Union as an ally against sort of um, colonial forces, which is now, of course, as well reverberating onto their many of these countries' interpretation of, of the war in Ukraine. But when it comes to Russian, sort of the influence of Russian narratives or even Russian soft power in a lot of countries, one of the things that's underestimated in the West, maybe because it's not pleasant to, to think about, is how much a lot of Russian self-power is just the fact that Russia's managed to tap into deep strands of anti-Westernism and to present yeah. itself as some kind of alternative or, you know, saying enough is enough or or giving them a bit of a bloody nose or mm. that kind of feeling. I think around the world, there's a feeling of good, they had it coming. Yeah. So, I don't want to bash the West, that's that's not the purpose, but I think we just need to be aware of this feeling that, that actually a lot of people do and that that appeals.
1: What Russia has done is created a field into which existing sort of culture war type debates can be Um, You know, people can insert themselves. Uh, You know, I'm very struck by how, in fact, you you worked on this, you know, how the Russian government uses religious diplomacy. It seems ironic because Russia is one of the least religious societies in the world. And yet, you know, for people in both the US but across the Americas who think that traditional religious values are under threat, that can be quite an attractive appeal can't it
0: yes it is exactly and i think of course it's it it doesn't hold up russia actually targets a lot of evangelicals and baptists which are the sort of denomination those sort of protestant denominations yeah. that that tend to find these narratives most appealing or, or to, sh- to have this idea of Russia as this sort of country about any immigrants or you know that's yeah. deeply religious which is just pretty much the opposite really of what Russia is in reality mm. but it doesn't matter because it's like you say it's about the the agency or, or what these people what what these people want to move there you said it really well this idea that you know really they're buying into a narrative they're seeing what they want to see and, and slotting their own culture wars um into it what I what I do think is important to note, though, is that Russia, it's not so much about Christianity or, you know, Russia has four official religions. It's more about the idea that Russia is a country that respects tradition um, and that Russia is a country that respects kind of its cultural roots and, and people's traditional values, these sorts of ideas. Um And that's where the idea of sort of religion ties in and particularly around this law of it's illegal to sort of offend um, the feelings of of religious believers. And Mm. then that law is used to appeal, you know, not just to Christians, but but also um, to to Muslim countries in the Middle East, this idea of, well, we're not like those heathens in the West, you know, um, they're constantly kind of referencing, I suppose, um, like like what they call gender innovations, uh, Mm. which I'll I'll leave to the listeners' um, discretion to interpret as they wish. Um, But they're constantly referencing these things that that perhaps aren't especially popular about Western culture in in the Middle East. And, And again, it's that point of a lot of the time it's about positioning themselves as an alternative to the West, but it's not really that fleshed out. It's more just, oh, look, the West does that thing that you don't like and we don't.
1: And and that's how we end up with the, the bizarre spectacle of, of J.K. Rowling being cited by Vladimir Putin as a sort of victim of Western cultural um, innovation.
0: Yes, exactly. I mean, and I don't. I don't think that was something. My aunt is that wouldn't be something J.K. Rowling would have welcomed, given that she is very staunchly pro-Ukrainian and and uh, has has done a lot to to provide support for Ukraine. But that. But the idea of cancel culture, it's yeah. very prominent, and it's just it's absolutely obscene even just the you know sort of shouty discussion shows that they have um, that have now taken over all of Russian TV for the last few months. Um, mm. They were talking about how you know there's no freedom of speech in the West and you know thank God Russia isn't like that and you're just thinking you know you, go to, you can go to prison for, for, saying for the uh,
1: word war. Yeah
0: <laughs> exactly for calling it a war for, t- for yeah. telling any form of truth it's, it's completely bizarre but in a weird way it, it does make sense in their logic but it's just unpacking that logic takes an awful lot of time <laughs> it's, yeah. it's a perverted logic.
1: Yeah, and one of the things that I'd, I'd love to hear a little bit more about because I know that you've done a lot of work on this is is how the Russians target Western audiences. Because on the face of it, this all seems a bit, as you say, a bit bizarre. Here, are people talking about freedom of speech in a highly authoritarian state. Uh, they're talking about religion in, a, in in a country that you know carried out huge massacres of of, of priests and, and closed down monasteries and so on, and yet. They have targeted uh, audiences, conservatives, often culturally conservative audiences, for example, here in Britain, but also, as mentioned, in Serbia, in parts of the Americas. How are they actually doing this? What's Mm -hmm. what's the method?
0: I think that there isn't one overall method other than to be quite specific to their audience where possible. And I think that's where everybody gets a bit mixed up, maybe sometimes in the US and the UK, because everyone's just so... Um, keen to discover Putin's playbook. But really, I mean, he's quite opportunistic and he probably isn't involved in a lot of this stuff. I mean, ironically, a lot of it's quite, I suppose you'd call it quite neoliberal in a way, in that some of the people who we think of as kind of representing Russian state interests, they're actually doing it off their own back. And using their own money. And yes, if they do well, if they show some kind of results, um, the, an obvious example here would be Konstantin Malafiev, who's um, a very kind of, he's connected very much with orthodox and nationalist circles mm. in Russia. And he um, kind of runs his own showdown in Serbia and Montenegro. And and he's had some successes, but he's also had some failures. And, you know, if you succeed, you're rewarded. But if you fail well, that's on, that's on you. You know, the, the state, the Russian state isn't going to help you. So again, I think we think a lot of things are centralized and, and much more devious and and competent than in right. fact they, they are. But what Russia is good at and what I think is finding out where those painful points in the society exist and they exist organically and then kind of nuzzling their way um, into their and, and then exploiting it. Because ultimately nobody was watching the BBC or, or CNN and then all of a sudden like turns over to RT and it's like, oh, okay, no, I'm convinced now. You know, a lot of the people watching RT, they were gonna watch that or something else anyway.
1: Yeah, so they've already made a decision.
0: Yes, exactly. And then it just, RT just then reinforces that. I mean, there have been other areas that have been more successful. For example, um, I think Sputnik, uh, before it was shut down in the West anyway, was was more successful. And I think one of the areas that needs to be looked at, and I say this with sadness, because I see, I'm, you know, I, I myself am on the left, but I think um, is Russia's ability to kind of tap into some residual fondness, for the Soviet Union and not so residual, much more overt kind of anti-Americanism among certain certain parts of, of the left um, yes. in, in the West. I think there needs to be a bit more analysis done on that. Some of my findings, for example, around the wearing of the St. George's ribbon in, in certain sort of more, more militant factions of the left and the St. George's Ribbon is, well, on the face of it, it's a commemorative symbol for World War II, but it really isn't. It's actually very much a statement of Russia's right to dictate to other countries. And it's very connected with supporting Russia's actions in um, Ukraine.
1: Yeah. And of course, we've seen, you know, in, in not, not that long ago, albeit before the invasion of Ukraine, figures on the left were prepared to, you know, question Russia's role in the Salisbury attacks or, or question... Mm-hmm. Russia's involvement in Syria and and war crimes there.
0: Yes, we have seen that. Exactly. Um, I I find it mind boggling. I, I, I myself wasn't personally that surprised because I knew about sort of the writings. I knew the Morning Star's position on Ukraine going back to 2014, um, which was essentially that you know NATO caused that, and we still see it with the Stop the War marches, where they there's sort of all these signs against NATO aggression. <laughs> well, it's not. Yeah. I mean, that's fine, and and feel free, of course, to protest against NATO aggression, but Ukraine is not one of them. Yeah. I mean, on the other hand, I I would also. I mean, there are also, of course, a lot of questions, um, you know, to be asked um, of the right, and it does seem quite remarkable, you know, that so many people close to putin and so many people close to the russian state including you know former deputy prime ministers have been able to be so comfortable so very comfortable in london whilst yes. um you know we've been very quick to introduce sanctions that affect everybody but i'm not entirely convinced that that all of the all of the elites have quite been removed from the shores yet
1: absolutely and i indeed i think there's quite strong evidence that We've got sanctions, but but I'm talking about the UK here. We've not mm-hmm, done mm-hmm. anything to create enforcement mechanisms, so that you know the sanctions look good, but they're not they're not changing the way people uh, have to behave. But th- talking about the, the political right, because I mean, you know, this is this is not uh, looking at it from only one angle. One thing that that has become fully established now on the right in political circles all across the English speaking world is this so called. Uh, woke agenda, or, or, or if you like, not the woke agenda, but the counteraction against it. I mean, is that an example of how Russia's sort of historical cultural campaign has actually acquired its own legs? Because I mean, again, in North America, this is a huge debate now about, you know, books that should be taken off school curriculum and so on. Um, is this a sort of case study of, of, of the thing has, has now acquired its own momentum and people have lost track of where this began?
0: To be honest, I don't think it began in Russia. I think this is a global phenomenon. Some people have described it as the replacement of ideology almost with memory, you know, with this kind of weird historicism or or weird kind of value and not just history, but kind of a values culture, Mm. Um, like where you stand on cultural aspects tells you where you are politically rather than maybe where you stand on sort of economics and the the means of production or ownership. Yeah. Um, What I would say is I think there's something especially intense about what's happened um, in Russia that's. Particularly around history, that's probably, and, and also in Eastern Europe. And I think that's linked to the fact that so recently there was a, a collapse and, and people then had to kind of rewrite history to create this new future.
1: So um, we've talked about the way in which Russia uses, you know, and mythologizes history in order to be able to pursue its current, what it sees as its current political uh, interest. But is, is there a degree to which, I mean, we in the UK, are obsessed with World War Two. We have endless myths about how Britain mm-hmm. stood alone, and mm-hmm. and you know, we we when we say Britain, we we don't often mention the millions of people in South Asia, for example, mm-hmm. who were part mm-hmm. of that. Um,
0: so, is 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 it any different? I don't think it necessarily is so different if you just look at it in terms of the the practice in itself. I think that of course, the Britain standalone alone narrative, it isn't, technically it isn't true, but I think to many Britons, you know, probably even to me, even though I know that it's not really true, mm. it, it's still very powerful because I think yeah. it does represent that kind of, a, I call it an allegorical truth. So the idea yeah. that, that really... Even though of course there was the Empire in there in many ways it wasn't technically true, that there is a truth in it that, that Britain's leaders and, and people they did, you know, they did display some bravery in, in opting mm. not to surrender in, in dark times. And I think that the same is true for, for the Russian myth as well. Um, that, you know, even if maybe individual stories are are made up, ultimately the Russian and Soviet people did display incredible bravery. They went through so much, you oh, know, yeah. and there is that kind of that higher truth within it, even if maybe that particular Particular story of those people who all threw themselves under the tank isn't true so and I think that's normal I think that's that's existed for ages. I think some of the differences between Russia and the UK or and, and other countries is the fact that in Britain you have this narrative and it's very powerful but also somebody can easily just go on TV and completely just have a right go at Churchill and call him all the names under the sun anybody can discuss it and people can have all sorts of views there's no laws saying this is you know that you can't say that that's not the case in Russia it's part of it's codified within the constitution since 2020 that you have to respect the memory of the great patriotic war there's many laws um Alexei Navalny for example has I mean he's been tried under a lot of laws to be fair but um one of one of the one of the after he was imprisoned for for breaking parole, he was then had to go to court almost immediately again. And that was for um upsetting the the feelings of of veterans, um which is essentially saying anything that the state doesn't like about world about World War two or, or accusing the state of of politicizing world war II, which which they do. So again, yeah. criminalization of the truth. And we see this as well in Ukraine, where immediately in Mariupol, once they'd finally stopped pummeling it into the ground, the next step was to take the history textbooks and burn them. Wow. Yeah.
1: I guess sort of as a final question, an area to touch on, the history that Vladimir Putin, you know, again, it may have been a sort of fake history, but the history that he sought to draw on was one that said that Kiev is part of Russia we have the right to dominate it and rule it. Um, Now, it looks likely that that isn't going to work out for them, you know, that that they're not going to be able to take control. So uh, what do you foresee as events unfold? How do you think this will evolve in terms of Russia's sort of use and response to history with the failure of the Ukraine mission?
0: Mm -hmm. I I don't think it will really have any big impact. I mean, I started studying this in in 2014. I think it really started in earnest, this kind of, I call it like a call to history, this this sort of obsessive preoccupation with with rewriting history and making it relevant to today. Um, I think it really started with Putin's return to the presidency in 2012. And then it's always been quite closely linked. The intensification has always been quite closely linked to Ukraine and and the annexation of Crimea breathed um, a a lot of life into it. The fact that Russia talks about history so much, they see that as one of their strengths. So they have mm. this idea that they are more in touch with kind of their real selves, their authentic selves, I suppose, yeah. if we put it in California language. Um, and and whereas the West has lost its way, you know, Russia is the true Europe, and, and Europe has has lost its way with all of its kind of you know mad liberal values. Mm. I speak to a lot of Russians who are for the war um, for for a different book at the moment, and they think that they will win. They have absolutely no um shadow of, of a doubt, and the reason why is because they think that they have the stomach for it, that the West is just on the verge of civilizational collapse, and that they um are you know a much a much healthier society again this does not <laughs> this does not show up kind of in in any kind of reality but um, in terms of demographic or economic or whatever. So I guess, obviously, you have to wait and see, but they, they think they're stronger than us, that they're, that they're stronger than the West. And of course, they give no agency to Ukraine. So no. that's why they've that's why they've failed. And in a way, I don't think they will ever turn away from this kind of historicism. But ironically, it's what will cripple a lot of their efforts to, to prove um, that they are this great power, because as a result, they don't afford any agency to Ukraine. And... I mean, clearly, I think we can all say clearly that was a mistake on their part.
1: We hope you find these war bulletins valuable amongst the huge amount of information out there. So don't forget to subscribe and help spread the word by rating us five stars on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or any other app that has ratings. And if you really like the show, you can support us on the crowdfunding app, Patreon. You'll get the shows early, ad free and help shape future episodes, all from as little as three pounds per month. Just search Patreon Doomsday Watch or follow the link in the show notes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.